all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Good morning and thanks for being with us on Southern Remedy for Women. Dr. Owens is in a mood today. <laughs> we have to peel her off the ceiling. Uh, I'm Karen Brown, and that is Dr. Michelle Owens. She's a specialist in maternal fetal medicine and OBGYN at UMMC. And the much more demure today, surgical pathologist, Dr. Allie Brown. Okay. All right. <laughs> See? <laughs> Look, it is happening. Okay, guys. I'm telling you, the Mississippi groundhog, it should be the national designated groundhog. I don't think Mississippi has a groundhog. Well, I'm going to tell you, Mississippi people are tired of winter, I think. I know, because it keeps teasing us. Like, it gets nice out, like yesterday, and then And then the temperature dropped 20 again. degrees. All I mean, right, so that's what we need to do. What? People in our listening audience need to find, we need to find a groundhog. That's going to be our thing next year. We'll we'll bring him down to the studio at MPB, and we'll have our own little press conference. Karen, you or can Bob do the Cat. news. It's a Bobcat. Yeah, I can hardly you wait. Can, you can do your news, and we can say, take that, Phil. How about it? So I'm going to give you the phone hog. number. Don't call in about a groundhog <laughs> or chiggers. Dr. Owen, I can't believe you said it. We'll be talking All about right. it forever. Phone number to call, one eight seven seven mpb ring one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Maybe you want to know why you're calling. We're talking about the heart today. You can send an email to women at mpbonline.org. Let me just point out that none of us are really wearing red. Dr. Brown thinks she's wearing red, but I swear she's it's orange. So not. I it's so orange. wish we could Facebook Live right now. It is totally not red. Yeah. Even well, let's Jay just White say I'm orange. the closest at the table, you are. I'm and I'm at the red mic. Black. So those are both facts. Uh, negative. Okay, so the reason that we would want to wear red is on Friday, every Friday during this heart month, you're supposed to wear red to show your advocacy for your heart. Bringing awareness <laughs> for women's heart disease. Yes. That's right. The red right. dress. Yes. Where do we start? Do we start with some facts about the heart? You know, how many chambers, what it does. What about heart disease in women facts? Yeah, because, I mean, I think the heart disease and women facts are kind of really salient. But if you want to go, we can we can do, you know, how what, many chambers What the heart. Yeah. Four, so unless you're a frog. Four. If you're a frog, there are three. Well, and if you're a fish, there are two. <laughs> but um, no, seriously. So there are four chambers. There are two receiving chambers that we call the atria, which is plural for atrium. And then the two pumping chambers on both the right and the left side, which are called the ventricles. And they are responsible sorry, for sending blood out to the body. The right side of the heart sends the blood to the lungs to be oxygenated. And then the oxygenated blood comes back into the left side of the heart. And then from the left side of the heart goes out to the rest of the body. And then the cycle repeats itself. 
Hopefully. So there. So that's kind of the basis. Um, But if we're talking about facts for women and heart disease, um, you know, there are lots of reasons why this is important. Um, And one of the things that I think um, most people may have already heard is that heart disease is the leading cause of death um, for women. It's also the leading cause of death for men. Um, But I think that so often there are other um, health issues and concerns that um, affect women. Um, and for example, there's a lot of um, concern about cancers, different types of cancers. Yeah, I bet if you asked women on the street what is the number one killer of women, I bet they would say cancer. A lot yeah. of them, and they yeah. would but probably not think bre- breast cancer mm-hmm. probably would be one of the more more popular responses. I would think, but um, in actuality, it is it's not uh, cancer. And I think there's a lot we always talk about. Um, early early detection and appropriate screening for different types of cancers for women um, and we talk about things related to our hormones and exposures and other things that may put us at increased risk um, but uh, I think it's really important that that message continues to get out there about um, heart disease being the number one killer in women I, I Is stroke that, included in that sorry no that that's cardiovascular disease, but yeah, not heart disease. I did see that one in three deaths in women is because of heart disease, but only one in 31 is from breast cancer. I mean, yeah, so that puts it in a big difference. It's almost almost a tenfold, almost a tenfold um, increase compared, um, which is pretty significant um, when you think about it. And I think sometimes, you know, there's there's a very big push towards breast cancer awareness. And I think that a lot of women are very fearful um, of of breast cancer in general. We worry about hormone replacement therapy and does that increase our risk and all of those things. recognizing that our greatest risk fa- risk factor for breast cancer is age um, but there are a variety of other things that place us at risk for heart disease and the truth is that for most of the women who actually die from breast cancer um, you know women who are experiencing um, problems or complications related to heart heart disease that usually occurs earlier in their life than the breast cancer even um, so I think that that there's just I'm, I'm really glad that we have an opportunity here to kind of bring more awareness to the subject and also give people some um, some statistics and information to kind of help to to frame this discussion and for for women to be able to see themselves reflected in this data and recognize that it 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 impacts each and every one of us. I mean, if you ask how many people know someone who has breast cancer, but then when you ask how many of us know someone who's had a heart attack or who's died from, you know, a heart attack or heart disease, um, it's, it really kind of helps to put things in perspective. How about this statistic? Since 1984, more women than men have died of heart attacks. Can you believe that? Why? <laughs> Why? What happened in 1984? <laughs> I don't know. Well, that George Orwell book. But no, if you think about, there's an issue here, and we've talked about this before on the show, that many women have an atypical presentation. So they don't have the classic symptoms of chest pain and pain radiating down your arm. And so... Oh, so it isn't that it's a worse might. heart attack. It's just that it's not being recognized that's as a heart what, attack. That's one factor. That's well, one yeah. Factor. And, I th- I, and I like that you said that. There, and, and that's something Thanks. that we can't echo enough 
is this concept of atypical symptoms. And I think that a lot of times because they may not necessarily fall into the realm of what most people think of as the classic symptoms of a heart attack, they may tend to, women may decide to kind of push them off or explain them away or, you know, oh, I'm not really feeling well. I should, I just need to sit down or I just need to lie down. Yeah. Like and, I saw it on TV. People clutch their chest because they're in pain. You know, that's not what I'm having. It must not be a heart attack. If you're clutching your chest, you should be concerned. Always be <laughs> yeah. concerned about clutching heart is bad. But and you know, so and the statistic piece, I think, is really important because when you said that, do you know that two thirds around six, well, 64 percent of women who die suddenly of coronary artery disease or heart disease, disease of the the actual blood vessels of the heart, have no previous symptoms. So scary. Yeah, and I mean, so that's out of every three people who actually die or have a major heart attack, um, and and they die. Two thirds of those people have had no symptoms before. So, so they, no one knows they have heart disease until they have a heart attack. Well. <laughs> You hope not, but that's where Dr. Owens was just talking about early detection, not just for cancer, it's for heart disease, knowing your risk factors. Absolutely. And and those things that we can do, one of the, so it's, so we, we're talking about these things and it can sound really imposing and very scary, but there's also good news, you know, um, and the good news is that many of the risk factors for heart disease are things that are modifiable. I mean, one of the things I think is most frustrating to me as a healthcare professional is when I encounter um, situations clinically or with my patients that we really can't do anything about. Um, that's one of the things that for me is a, a personal source of frustration. Um, and so to me, I feel like it if we actually are able to do things differently and by doing those things differently health wise change or decrease our risk by making different choices by making different decisions by by changing the way that we live then i think that that's actually that's good news that's uh something that should be a source of excitement enthusiasm and optimism because we're not just saying oh well regardless you you know this is going to be the number one killer forever, and there's nothing we can do about it. There are actually actually many different things that we can do um, and ways that we can modify our behaviors, our diets, our activity levels in order to make a difference in our overall risk and hopefully get to a point where one day um, we, we're, we're saying something different. We might still be calling attention to heart disease, but, but maybe we won't be saying that it's the number one killer of women. Um, and maybe we will all be living healthier lives. And as a result, we can decrease the impact of heart disease on overall mortality for all people. We're going to the phone. Kinsey calling in from Mobile, Alabama. Hi, Kinsey. How are you doing? Great. How are you? I'm doing all right. Did you call with a question? Uh, yes, ma'am. I, I was. You guys were talking about diet and everything and, and things that we can do. Uh, what about the misinformation? Uh, the World Health Organization came out about uh, processed meats being a group one carcinogen. And there's a study uh, going in about red meats as well. I was just wondering uh, the, your panel's take on it. I'll, I'll take the answers off, offline. And I'll, Thank you, Kinsey. Well, regarding heart disease, uh, meat is not bad, but you need to eat lean meats 
because it's those saturated and trans fats that are uh, promote atherosclerosis, which is the actual laying down of the plaque in the blood vessels that essentially does not allow blood to get to the heart muscle and cause What does he mean, though, by processed meat? Well, Well, it has chemicals, and he's talking more about cancer risk. Yeah, and and so... and Kinsey's like right on it. This is actually some information. Um, and this dialogue has been taking place actually over a course of the past few years, because I think the first um, printed material or first official information that came out from the World Health Organization regarding this um, came out in um the fall or so of 2015 and basically so first of all when they talk about you know red meat they are basically talking about mammalian muscle meat so beef veal pork lamb horse goat um that's kind of what they're talking about when they talk about red meat groundhog did you say groundhog oh my gosh Sorry. Finish your thought because we have to go to a break. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're going to keep moving on that one. Um, And then with respect to processed meat, since you asked that, Karen, it's really referring to anything that um, has been altered by the process of if it's spam. Salting, well, that's a particular meat, but salting, curing, um, if you smoke it, any other process that either is, and, and usually it's for flavor enhancement or for preservation because, you know, you need to keep it for a little longer. Um, but anyway, um, most of the meats that are processed do kind of contain pork or beef, um, but they also can have other meats in them. So poultry and other things can be a part of it. So, you know, like hot dogs and and sausages, hams, those kinds of things. Beef jerky even counts as a processed meat. And we know that hot dogs are not really meat. And then we'll, so I guess what we can do is we can go on to the break. And then after that, we can talk a little bit about the carcinogen question, um, recognizing, though, that this is really about what we're trying to focus on is heart disease. um, And this is specifically discussing, you know, cancer risk. (laughs) All right. We're going to, I mean, give the phone number. Don't go breaking my heart. Okay. So, no, it's not. See, it's one eight seven seven mpb ring one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four or send an email to women at mpbonline.org and feel free to sing along. We'll be right back on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Stop dragging my, stop dragging 
art songs, we can send your request. <laughs> Email your request, but not really. Email with a question if you'd like, or call us at one eight seven seven MPB ring eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Who besides me wants to listen to more music? You know, right? I was so like, cool. now all of a sudden we can say it is the cardiac mix here on MPB Radio. <laughs> I like how you got your slow jam voice when you said that. We are talking about the heart today with Dr. Michelle Owens and Dr. Ali Brown. So you were speaking about in in uh, response to one of our callers' questions. Kinsey. Right. Kinsey had called and had asked about, um, you know, we were talking about modifiable risk factors, and he brought up uh, something that is not exactly related to heart disease per se, but I think um, one of the points he was trying to make is that sometimes people are not always made aware or things may not be promoted um, about some of the things that we can do differently to change health outcomes. Um, And his specifically was related to um, cancer risk related to red meat consumption and also processed meats. And so um, before we took our last break, we were talking about what, what, was included um, in that World Health Organization information. And these all were, uh, so processed meats as well as red meats were put together and classified in group one, which is in the same group as tobacco use or smoking um, and asbestos, asbestos, Mm -hmm. right. As with respect to cancer risk. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, because they are all grouped together, it does not mean that they are the same. And so it doesn't mean that they are all equally as dangerous. But what they did acknowledge was that there there was enough information to link them to increased cancer risk in humans. And so that's kind of uh, just in a nutshell what that particular call was referring to. Um, And so now that we're talking, so that would mean that one way to decrease cancer risk would be to stop smoking, not to hang out with asbestos and to stop eating hamburgers. Well, (laughs) moderation. moderation. Yeah. And so, and, and by decreasing consumption of those meats that we discussed, don't eat red meat every day. And, and also the, um, and processed meats by minimizing your intake of those things that you can decrease your cancer risk. That being said, I think that's a very great segue for us to move into what we can do to decrease cardiovascular risk, um, which is, you know, over all risk, risk factors for heart disease, which is really kind of the focus of today's Go Red for Women first Friday of Heart Month um, focus. So um, I think that would probably be a great place for us to go to. Um, So there are some things, uh, as I said, there's some good, the good news is that there are things that we can do to make a difference. And so the flip side of that is there are also some things that we can't really do anything about. Okay, so you can't really change your genetics. We hadn't really quite gotten there yet. Um, so what are the things that are kind of those fixed risk factors, the things that you, that are not going to change or not really very modifiable? Family history. You can't go back and pick a new set of genetic donors. You just got what you got, right? Um, so family history, um, other things that we can't really do anything about, despite res- reservatrol and all that other great stuff, there is no fountain of youth. So as we age, um, our risk increases. And so there's not really anything you can do about that as long as you're going to continue to get older. So that's really something that's not going to change. Um, 
gender. Um, and so there might be some controversy over that. But for the most part, um, males are still at slightly higher risk for cardiovascular disease than women, although we're starting to see women catch up very quickly, which is kind of why we're having oh, this boy. talk today. Um, Some the, people are born with a heart condition that a- kind of makes them even absolutely. more sensitive to getting heart disease. Mm-hmm. And those people who have um, kidney disease. Mm-hmm. So those with uh, chronic kidney disease. So those are kind of things that for the most part, and, you know, there can occasionally be changes when, say, for example, if you get a, tra- a transplant or something like that, where you may have an improvement in your renal function, et cetera, which is a little different. But for the most part, those are kind of things that are fixed. But really on the bright side of the family history thing, knowing your family history and using that as a key to get early attention and bringing things up, letting your doctor know if you have a history of people in your family who had a heart attack, particularly at a younger age. Absolutely. Then you can seize that and make it into Mm -hmm. something that actually brings a positive to being more aware. Because most of the women who have like the average age for these heart attacks or coronary events that we're discussing in women is really around 70. So if you have a family member who had a heart attack at 50, male or female, that's a big deal. And, and as a physician, that's something that I want to know. And, and I'm not even a person who treats heart disease. But if you tell me that, then that changes how I view you. And then all of a sudden, I am making sure that you are getting the appropriate follow up with another person who might either identify, treat or whatever, um, or follow you for the for that risk factor, because those kinds of things are substantial and make a big difference in people's overall risk. And there are plenty of people out there who have family members who in their 30s or 40s or 50s have experienced heart attacks. And that actually, if, if that's in your family, the best thing that you can do is use that, be armed with that information and share it with your healthcare provider so that you can be treated special, treated in a special way as, as a higher risk person, because, you know, things tend to happen in those at highest risk. Yeah, you and might get different screening. Absolutely. You know, we've all heard of people or even know people, generally men, it seems like, young and fit and, hmm. you know, eat great and they're very active and they drop dead of a heart attack. Can we Skinny assume- fat. Okay, skinny That's fat. What is that? <laughs> That's what I they call hide it. it. Well, well, like is I that... have super high cholesterol, and you wouldn't know it looking at me because okay, I'm very right. fit and thin. So just because you're not obese doesn't mean you can't have. Heart but do disease. you have that yeah. because it's because genetics? It's, uh, well, and the other part yeah, is, and you can eat badly and still be thin. This frankly. is yes, you can. <laughs> and on top of it, I think the other part is that there's a misperception. And this is something, so this is going to be one of those nuggets that's being dropped for everybody out there that is applicable in this case, but is also widely applicable over a variety of other healthcare topics. Do not be confused. You cannot simply look at a person and always tell what kind of medical issues they are dealing with. So I have seen very real, thin, small, um, or petite women who have the most, like, really aggressive type of hypertension, and they're on, like, three medications, and and they are are young, and they look, because they might look healthy, um, they are still at a very high risk because they are either very poorly controlled or we got them on several different medications in order to control their blood pressure. So um, it's not always what 
things are not always as they seem. And they, we, we must be very careful not to make assumptions. There are also some people who may meet criteria for obesity who don't have hypertension, who don't have diabetes, who, you know, when you're looking at their list of medical problems, they don't have any. And then you see somebody who looks very different, who has a laundry list of things going on. And so and the other piece is like from an emotional standpoint, it's the same way, you know, just like we can't look at somebody and ascertain what their physical issues are. The other part is you have to be very careful and sensitive to to recognize that we also can't necessarily look at somebody on the outside and know what's going on with them emotionally and internally. So um, it's... Does that it, mean there's a direct correlation between stress and how you handle things emotionally and heart disease? So, so there is definitely a correlation between um, stress and heart disease. Um, that wasn't why I said that. But, um, but there is definitely a correlation. And that, again, we, we talk about this, the way that you can't really parcel out or separate mind and body and, and how they, they go together and they will complement each other in some cases. And in other cases, they can create difficulty. So you can sometimes have a situation where a person is dealing with a whole lot of stress and, that ends up becoming a huge problem for them or it manifests itself in a physical way if they don't have a way to manage that stress appropriately. Back to the phones we go. Stephanie calling in from Jackson. Hi, Stephanie. Go ahead. Hi. Um, I have severe hypertension and, and have for about six or seven years now. Um I was taking amlodipine for four years, five years. Then I started on propanolol. Um, it did help to bring my blood pressure down, but I was unaware that the side effects it would have of basically shutting off my metabolism. Um, and I gained like 40 pounds in a year, in, in the year and some odd months that I was on it. Um, I'm now on Valsartan with a diuretic. Um, and I haven't been back to have my blood pressure rechecked to see how it's working, but are there any such side effects with that medication? Stephanie, we're going to turn your phone down just because it's crackling pretty badly, and and, um, and we'll be able to, to listen and speak to you a little bit better. Okay, okay well, you, you try and call us back. Dr. Owens will start to answer your question. If you want to call back, maybe the line will be better. Okay? Nope, I think she already hung up. Yeah, because I, I was going to ask. She her said to, Losartan. Is that what she's taking? I, that's what I, w- I that's what I, heard. I missed the name of the drug, and that's what I was going to ask for uh, her to clarify what it what she said that she was taking. But you heard Losartan. That's what I thought she said. Okay. which can cause weight gain. It can. You know, it's and and here's the thing, right? It's it, you. So you trade off one for the other. You get mm-hmm. you get great blood pressure control, which lowers your risk, and then you increase your weight, which increases your risk. <laughs> so it's this constant, and and that is one of the. So for the listening audience, acknowledgement from a physician, a healthcare professional, um, we get it that that can be very frustrating. You get one problem fixed, and then another one pops up, and um, so that's why you really need to make sure that you're being taken care of by someone who, you know, treats you as a, as a whole person. Um, and you kind of have to, to start this thing with the end in mind, recognizing that all of these things kind of fit together. And sometimes you deal with one problem at a time 
And so you deal with the most pressing one. And then after that, perhaps if you get that one under control, then you have an opportunity to deal with the next one. Um, But if the downside of beta blockers, which can be weight gain, and it also kind of sometimes makes people feel just really drained and lethargic to the point that you might have led a much more active or a much more active lifestyle and you just don't feel like you have the energy to do that. Um, I think that's one of the things that our primary care doctors do very well is the follow-up for people so that once they start you on a medicine, they bring you back, they say, hey, how's it working, and ask you how you're feeling. And so while it is important, yes, to get your blood pressures under control, do not ever discount the significance of side effects, especially when those side effects somehow impact your quality of life like that is that needs to be mentioned and discussed with your physician it's not just about getting that number down but you got to find a way to have the therapy that works and and a side effect profile that is acceptable to you is something that you can can actually deal with because that's going to be the best way for you to have compliance um, and put you in a position to have the best outcomes. We're going to take a break, and then uh, Anne is calling in from Natchez. Anne, hang on the line, and we'll talk with you as soon as we come back on Southern Remedy for Women on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Everybody wants to take a chance and make it come out right. And mics are on. Live mic, while karaoke here in the studio. While we are enjoying the Eagles. I'm Karen Brown. The doctors, Dr. Owens and Dr. Brown, are taking your questions. And we have one now from Ann, who's calling in from Natchez. Hi, Ann. Do you have a question for the doctors? Uh, Yes, ma'am. My feet are swollen and they won't go down. And somebody told me that was uh, connected to having heart problems. I was put on an aspirin regimen a few years ago. And, um, now I'm on a fluid pill called Lasix, but it went from 20 milligrams to 40, and it's still not working me like it should. And my feet are swollen, and nobody, no doctor I go to will address my feet and ankles and legs and thighs swollen and cold all the time. And turn your radio down if you can, because we're hearing that in the oh, background. Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> See, we're hearing, you we're back hearing there. her on a little bit of a delay. That's yeah. all right. Um, so, Anne, um, 
thanks for calling. And uh, I think what you what you mentioned is so you've been told correctly that that can be um, a symptom swelling, uh, especially swelling of the lower extremities can be a symptom of um, of heart disease. Um, And one of the things that we worry about uh, that is that is would probably be the most pressing is specifically heart failure. Um, You can get uh, a lot of swelling in your lower extremities. However, um, swollen feet um, and and sometimes it's if it's just the feet, if it's the feet and your legs or if it extends further up your body. All of those things, like the extent of your swelling, kind of gives you would give your healthcare provider an idea of what the most likely causes are. Because there are many different things that can cause swelling in your feet. And so, questions like, is it on one side or both sides? Um, is it something that happens? Like, is it worse at the end of the day um, and like in the morning it if you elevate them does it go away or get better um, so in addition to it just being a symptom of or that it could be a symptom of heart failure there are other things um, if it's unilateral you might worry about whether or not there's a blood clot because blood clots can cause swelling um, sometimes some warmth some tenderness or pain in the extremity um, sometimes if you have renal disease one of the side effects of having problems with your kidneys is that you can have swelling in your feet diabetes um, diabetes can cause you to have some swelling and um, other things if there's some trauma to you know your feet or your ankle, of course, that could also cause it. But um, there are some problems with your veins that can create problems with swelling in your feet. So um, you can have fluid retention related to things that you may consume in your diet. So there are a variety of different issues. If this is something, and, and so sometimes the diuretics can take care of it, but I think what's what is a more important question is is the identification of the underlying cause. And so some of those things that I mentioned are things that you can treat. And once they're treated, they resolve. For other circumstances, that may not be the case. And so the answer may just be to put you on a fluid pill because that's treating the symptoms and will make it a little bit better. But that may be all that can be done about the underlying cause. Without knowing some of those specifics, it's hard to say for sure um, but what I will tell you is that one thing that you said that that really bothered me is when you said, well, nobody will address it. If this is something that is a concern of yours and you have a primary care doctor or a family doctor or somebody that you see regularly, ask them about it. And if you are not aware of what they believe is the cause, because this happens all the time. My mother called me um, a a little while ago and said, hey, um, your dad got this medicine. What's it for? And I thought, well, didn't you ask the doctor when he gave it to you? Uh, (laughs) Didn't you ask the doctor when they gave it to you? So there are plenty of times when, as a patient, you may a doctor may tell you take this for this reason and sometimes we may not do a great job of making sure you understand why 
So I think that the next time that you see your physician, because in in order for you to get that prescription for the the diuretic or the fluid pill, somebody's prescribing it. So the next time you see that that physician or that provider, ask them, I know you're giving me this and it's a fluid pill, but what's it for? Ask them why they think your feet are swelling. Um, And if they tell you they don't know, then the next question should be, well, what are we going to do to find out? What are we going to do to figure this out? Um, and and those are not questions that you should feel reluctant or hesitant to ask. Those are questions that are very appropriate and that you really have a right to know. And and the truth is that sometimes the doctor doesn't have all the answers, but together you can work on it until you actually figure it out. And thank you so much for your phone call. We hope you feel better and find out what's going on. If you'd like to give us a call, the number is one eight seven seven mpb ring one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You wanted to get get back to your is it a list of of uh, cardiovascular risks? Yeah, just making sure that we could talk about um, modifiable risk factors, and we touched on a few of them earlier. Um, the cigarette smoking. And we haven't... Just we, stop it. Just, yeah. Don't do it. Just don't. It's and bad I, for everything. And I'll be the first to admit that that is very easy to say. Much easier said than done. Much easier said than done. But to every person out there under the sound of my voice who is a smoker, who has struggled or who is contemplating letting go of cigarettes... It is one of the best things you can do for your overall health, not just with res- with respect to decreasing your risk for heart disease, but for so many other things in your life. So if you are so motivated or so inclined, it it probably it may also be one of the more difficult things you've ever done, but it will be so worth it. So I'm going to throw that out there. Um Recognizing again that it's not easy, but it is doable. It is definitely doable and totally worth it. Um, other um, risk factors: uh, diabetes is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease, and you know um, there are lots of things that people can do to either a uh, appropriately or adequately manage their diabetes. And in some instances. People can go from, you know, requiring medications for diabetes to not having to require medications for diabetes at all through things like weight loss. That being said, overweight and obesity is also a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. Um, Dr. Brown mentioned cholesterol. So uh, elevated cholesterol or uh, hyperlipidemia or hypocholesterolemia. So high levels of uh, Fats and and cholesterol in your blood increases. Triglycerides. Yes, all of that. Yes, I know um, a word. <laughs> I like that you th- and it was like a three syllable one, right? <laughs> or maybe four. Four. Maybe even four. Um, so then, physical inactivity um, or low fitness. Um, so uh, all those couch potatoes out there are those people who are leading what we call a sedentary lifestyle, not get not getting up and, and doing much. Um, that is also a risk factor um, as well as an unhealthy diet. And we kind of touched on some of the things that lead you uh, lots of, you know, fried foods, saturated fats, um, those kinds of things also increase your risk. So I think it's really important for people to to hear that because those are things that we have some ability to change and control um and and they're 
they all are pretty significant contributors. We need to take our last break of the hour. I'm sorry yeah, I interrupted. You're always yeah. kidding me off. I am <laughs> terrible. It's your last chance to call in if you have a question or a comment. The number is one eight seven seven MPB ring one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. I still haven't heard the song. Don't I'm be lonely. For. We'll be right back on Southern Remedy for Women on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Who doesn't love Bruce Springsteen, Hungry Heart? Being a Jersey girl, you know that I like it, but we're going straight to the phone. Laura's calling in from Memphis. Hi, Laura. Laura, you there? One more time. Laura? Hello? Okay. Laura might have been singing to Bruce Springsteen. Laura, you can call us back. Please call us back. Yes, and we'll move on and say hi to Tim, who's calling in from Brooklyn, Mississippi. Hi, Tim. Yeah, I got a question about the food I, I seem to have a little problem with my foot and I went to the doctor and uh, foot doctor and he said something about gout and I like to eat animal uh, I was just curious what the relation may be and, and, and then I want to talk about my feet swelling uh, I used to drive truck and, and spend all day sat down in the seat I found if I pulled over in the afternoon the rest area and took a walk, it would uh, keep the swelling down. And two years ago, I flew to Japan and had a major problem getting my shoes back on. And when I came, before I came back, I bought some of those uh, stockings and put on my legs. And that, that solved that, that problem. But being sedentary, I know, helps, or it does not help the swelling of the feet and the legs. But my goat. So, Tim, you are, you are, uh, absolutely right. So just for the people who are out there listening, gout is a type of arthritis and it is um, when you have high levels of what's called uric acid in the blood. And so you get crystals that form and these crystals accumulate in the joint. And so that's kind of what gout is. Um, and And the diet thing actually is linked to it because... Um, uric acid is a byproduct of our bodies breaking down something that is a it's a chemical called purine. And so um, while it occurs naturally in our body, which is why we have it floating around, you can also find it in certain foods. And so those foods um, that can elevate purine levels or that our sources are high in purine are really kind of the ones that you have to be careful about when you have gout. So um, the uric acid actually is is uh, filtre- filtered through the kidneys uh, and excreted in our urine. Um, but the thing that you need to be aware of is that um, certain, and you said you're a carnivore, so certain meats, especially red meats, tend to be higher 
um, especially like liver, kidney, those kinds of organ things meats. that are organs, right? Organ meats uh, tends to be higher in purines. Um, and the other piece is you have to be careful about seafood because seafood is also another source um, of purine. So you have to be really careful there. Um, and also you got to watch your alcohol intake, but those are kind of the big dietary things that you have to watch out for when it comes to making sure that you have like a diet that will not perpetuate or, um, exacerbate gouty flares. All right, Tim, thank you so much for your phone call. Getting back to the heart, um, Dr. Brown, you oh, started... Thanks for remembering my name. Yeah. It's the same as yours. I know. Yeah. It confuses me mm-hmm. sometimes. Um, at the start of the show, you said that women present differently in terms of having Can a heart attack. Symptoms, so what are symptoms right. that are that are likely that a woman would have? Well, the the classic symptoms of a heart attack are still likely, which we should talk about, uh, chest pain, shortness of breath, breaking out in cold sweats, a feeling of pressure in your chest. But women are more likely to experience these atypical symptoms, sort of the so-called silent killer type heart attacks. So they might feel kind of like they have indigestion or the flu in that they feel very tired. So just excessive what we call fatigue, fatigue. or tiredness. That just that seems come out of proportion. Or it well, it can be lingering for you know for a few days, uh, just keeping in the back of the mind that 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 could be a symptom of heart disease and like a subclinical heart attack, or one that that doesn't kill you right away, but is causing damage to your muscles um, slowly. Um, you might feel like you pulled a chest muscle. Um, and you might just think something like that and just write it off to that um, jaw pain rather than chest pain. Pain in the upper back, so atypical areas, because the nerves that are inside of our chest, they don't you don't feel that pain exactly where they are. We call it referred pain. So sometimes the pain can refer to somewhere that you might not automatically equate to that's associated with your heart. So jaw pain, upper back pain, dizziness, and even nause- nausea and vomiting. Mm-hmm. So um, do we know why the women have different symptoms than men might have? Because we're special. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I wonder if it's a lot of it because women sometimes, men, I think, are more likely to have the types of heart attacks where you have the thrombosis of a plaque. So what happens when you have a heart attack is the blood vessels, the coronary arteries that actually supply your heart with blood to keep it oxygenated and and full of nutrients and to take away the toxins, they they narrow over time if you have high cholesterol, high blood pressure, diabetes, and those things. And we call that atherosclerosis. That's the deposition of plaque inside of arteries. Everyone's seen that on these drug commercials and stuff. And when the plaques are there for a while and they harden, they calcify, kind of like your bones are calcified. So they form calcium deposits and they get hard. You get these hard little knots Mm -hmm. inside your blood vessels. They're inside your blood vessels. And those plaques can rupture. And when they rupture, it makes a clot form because of inflammation and things like that. And that will form on top of the already vessel that's already narrowed by the plaque. Then all of a sudden you form a blood clot in the what's ever is the opening that's still left there. And that causes the acute uh, or a sudden uh, blockage of the blood to flow to the heart. And you see that more in men than you do in women. Yeah. When we talk about, so one of the terms that people use for heart attack is uh, MI or myocardial infarction. And basically that just means that there is actually that, 
that the the heart muscle itself actually dies. And why does it die? Because it is deprived of blood flow. And when it doesn't get blood flow, there's no oxygen that's delivered and it can't stay alive. Everything in our body is dependent upon blood flow in order to stay alive. You cut off blood flow to something, it's not going to live. So that's what happens. And that's what a heart attack is, is when a portion of the heart muscle actually dies because there has been a, a significant change in blood flow or a decrease or an absence of blood flow to that muscle. I know before we ended, you wanted to talk about there are new guidelines or. Yeah, this show has really flown by. I think it's been the great music. Um, so one of the things that I wanted people to know, and this is really important, um, there's been a lot of press lately about the new uh, hypertension guidelines. Um, and, and there's been a little controversy about it, but I just wanted people to hear this um, because it changes what we've always what we've typically thought of as, as the classification for blood pressure. So normal blood pressure is less than the top number, less than 120, which is the systolic, um, and the bottom number of the diastolic, less than 80. If you are between 120 and 129 on your top number, that's considered elevated. Um, if you, and then hypertension has been subcategorized into stage one and stage two. Now, this is new. Stage one hypertension are people whose top number is between 130 and 139, or if your bottom number is between 80 and 89. That's new. Stage one hypertension. So before it was just 140 top number over 90. And now that's considered stage two. So if you are greater than 140 or greater than 90 for your bottom number, then that's stage two hypertension. So those of you who used to just be right under that 140 over 90 cutoff, be aware of that and see your physician because now you actually might be one of those people who classifies as stage one hypertension. Lots of good information today. Southern Remedy for Women is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio. It's funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and by generous support from the MPB Foundation. Today's show was engineered by Jay White, our call screener, Jason Klein. For Dr. Michelle Owens, for Dr. Allie Brown, I'm Karen Brown. Join us next Friday at 11 for Southern Remedy for Women. And stay tuned. NPR's Here and Now is next on MPB Think Radio. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting.